Hello everyone, welcome to the special episode of the European Student Think Tank podcast. My name is Nicole and today we are going to talk about the reduction in some European countries of the independence of civil society and of freedom of speech. To discuss the topic, analyze it and understand how the EU can act in order to stop these limitations and support the defense of human rights, we have Waltraud Heller. She is responsible for FRA's cooperation with civil society, notably the agency's fundamental rights platform. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. So, let's start this conversation by understanding better the concept of civil society, NGOs and civil society organizations, concepts and titles that everyone has heard, but that might sometimes not be clear and perfectly defined. What are their roles, their operational model and the impact they have on societies? So generally, when we speak about the civil society sector, it's also called the third sector, in addition to the public sector and the private sector, meaning uh, the businesses. So the third sector is generally is non-profit, so they don't gain an additional profit with, with what they do. They are independent from the government and probably most known is the concept of NGO, so the non-governmental organization. But in our definition, civil society is actually a bit broader than that or quite broader than that. For example, it would also include faith-based organizations, um, so like Caritas, uh, etc. Then it would also include social and professional organizations. So you would have, for example, a, an entity that we cooperate with closely, for example, is the Federation of Journalists or the Federation of Social Workers. So that would be professional organizations. Then also trade unions are sometimes considered part of civil society. So it's a very broad definition. I think the main, the main point to retain is that they are non-profit and that they work for the common good. And in some countries, there is even a legal definition that such organizations who work for the common or public good, they can have a special treatment in terms of, of taxes and charitable law. So uh, civil society... When, when we say that they are working for the common good, they would work on issues such as, for example, human rights issues, uh, social issues or environmental issues. So that would be typical tasks of, of civil society organizations where they try to improve the situation for people in a specific area. In the past few years, civil society organizations and NGOs alike have been experiencing and denouncing a reduction to their freedoms and independence. In its 2020 report, the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights had already found that 57% of national and local organizations registered a worsening trend, also due to the COVID-19 pandemic. What does this mean? So NGOs and civil society have been experiencing a reduction of their space. So we call that the civic space or Some people also call it the enabling space for civil society. So the enabling space would be the space that they need to operate to do the tasks that society actually needs from them, like helping the vulnerable, protecting the environment, etc. So we see that there can be issues in four different areas. The first one is the legal environment. So what are the laws that uh, sort of 
govern what the civil society organization can do. And very obviously there we see the freedom of association, freedom of assembly and freedom of expression as the most important. The second area um, is access to resources. And there organizations tell us that they find it harder to access financial resources than before. And we looked into that. It was interesting because we found that actually the amount of money has not really changed that much, but it's used in a different way. So what we see is that there is less money now for advocacy and more money has gone into service provision. So service provision is when the state asks NGOs to do tasks for them. So we know that, for example, from the area of refugees, where when larger numbers of refugees arrive, the state tasks certain NGOs to organize the housing, the first reception, the support, um, and then pays these NGOs for these tasks. And then also we see that funding is sometimes difficult uh, and complicated to apply and to, to do the reporting afterwards. The funding is often very short term, half a year. You can't do a proper project in half a year. It's impossible. I think anything below three years, frankly, doesn't make that much sense unless it's something really specific. Then the third area where we see the enabling space a bit challenged is participation to the decision makers. So that's all the area of consultation, participation. And here we see that across the EU, actually, it's very patchy. There, is, there are some good examples where countries have installed a sort of a website where you can see on one page all the ongoing consultations. But very often there are no minimum standards of, of consultation. No rules on how long the timeline has to be. So we saw examples where in a, in a large member state, a whole new asylum package NGOs had one day to comment. And the fourth area is threats and attacks. So when we started this work about five years ago, uh, we saw that in these three areas that I just mentioned, so the laws, the resources, and the participation, there was some information you could find. But on threats and attacks, there were no sources to understand are NGOs inside the EU also experiencing this or not. And so what we started is every year, an online consultation with civil society to understand how they are experiencing the situation in all these four areas. And uh, we found that actually they experience more threats and attacks than anyone would have thought also inside the EU. So what we see, for example, is that almost half of the respondents to our consultation consistently through the years say that they or any of their employees or volunteers experience verbal attacks, verbal threats, often online, including death threats. What we also see that is well over a third say that their own organization has been attacked in the media or by politicians publicly, a smear campaign against the organization. Um, what we also see, uh, which is on the rise, that is on the rise actually, was legal attacks. So basically someone, either a public entity or a company, suing in front of the court activists um, for something they are doing. And the aim is usually just to, 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 to bring all their attention and money and focus 
to the court case because they need to defend themselves and they don't have the energy to continue the work. Because what we see is that in as close as almost all cases, they always lose. So the NGOs always win the case because there was no legal ground uh, in the first place, but they have been busy for some years defending themselves also with, of course, with the mental stress and mental health toll that comes with all of this pressure. And what we also see is physical attacks. So physical attacks against activists and against their property. So in our latest consultation covering the year 2021, we have actually 7% of respondents saying someone in their organization experienced a physical attack. And that's quite a lot for the EU. So that was not expected when we started that work. And so what the Fundamental Rights Agency does is for the last five years, we have analyzed that, we have looked at what is happening and we have developed recommendations of what to do in each of these areas to improve the situation. There are no great improvements yet, but there are small improvements. But what we definitely see is that there is a much higher awareness among civil society itself, but also among policymakers. So in that sense, we have moved on. Of course, there is still a long way to go. And relating to this, I would think of Hungary, for example. This country and its citizens have faced the creation of legislative restrictions, including laws that significantly lower the bar for what it takes to jail people. This has caused the limitation of their freedom of speech, assembly and association. This shows that the deterioration to freedoms for civil society organizations are rather broad and consistent across the countries and topics. But what have been the repercussions of such setbacks on this organization and their work? And if any, what field has been most hit? So when we started this work um, some five, six years ago, many people thought that all these pressures on civil society and these challenges are something for outside the EU uh, in third countries. And so the term civic space, for example, was not used inside the EU. Um, and also in the EU, it seemed that, okay, we have a few countries, Hungary, Poland, where that were in the media on some issues. But when we started looking into it, actually, we found that, firstly, uh, civic space is very much an issue inside the EU. Secondly, we found, we did a mind map of issues, and we found that there are over 60 six zero different types of issues or challenges that civil society organizations can face inside the EU. And thirdly, we found that this applies to all EU member states. So in every single member state, civil society organizations are facing a number of these issues from this mind map. And so this is in the different, cat we then clustered it to the categories that I explained before. So the legal, the finance, the participation and the safe environment. But we can see that across the EU, everywhere there are issues. Of course, it depends. So the, the intensity or the, and the number of issues is a bit different, but it's not only different per country. It's also different depending on which areas an organization works on. So what we have seen across the board, across the EU, is that um, organizations that face more challenges are those who work on migration-related issues, refugee support, 
on LGBTI plus issues, um, on women's rights, anti-racism, notably Muslim organizations. It's not as black and white. Really, there are issues everywhere. Um, and maybe the resilience of the sector is different in different countries, also looking at the history. So if you look at, at Poland, for example, they have a very resilient civil society because of the history out of which this civil society came in Poland. Um, but then we also see that when the pressure increases, also sort of the counterbalance comes and civil society gets organized in a different way. So for example, in Hungary, what we saw is that Previously, a bit like in all countries, actually, civil society is a bit in was a bit in competition with each other, because you need to understand that civil society they compete for the same issues, they compete for the same attention with policymakers, they often compete for the same funds. So it's only under pressure then that these organizations, for example, in Hungary, they went into a coalition, they worked as closely together, they put aside the competition as never before because it was needed. So this, this is a way in which then how civil society reacts to these challenges. Right, but at this point, I would also ask, is this reticence to be attributed entirely to fear of backlash and consequences, or is this perhaps a dimension of personal interest? In other words, could NGOs and civil society organizations act or decide not to, to preserve relations, image, or for simple convenience? And if so, to what extent should this alarm us? This is an interesting question. And I think it's a complex question too. It's very wise in this situation of different threats and a lot of tasks that you need to do with little money I think it's very wise and strategic to pick your battles. So you, you cannot go into every battle. You just need to know which battle, which battle are you going into, really. And um, it's also interesting that you ask to preserve relations. I think it is important to preserve relations. And it's a very difficult balancing act to say, for example, when do you break your conversation with the government? There comes a point and there has been instances in different countries where civil society broke that contact. But on the other hand, if you want to achieve certain things, you must keep some lines of communication open. So I think it's, um, it will depend really on the concrete situation, on the concrete topic. Or you choose sometimes to be silent because you don't want to harm those that you are representing even more. So it's a, it's a very difficult choice, actually, to make for, for civil society organizations. <clears throat> so that's this one aspect, the political pressure, let's say. There is a second aspect, that's the funding. For example, many funders only fund a certain type of work. Um, I think there is a certain mismatch between what is needed on the ground and what funders understand is needed. And that then also creates that same gap, maybe not in an active or aggressive way, but in a, um, in a lack of understanding of the, of the needs of civil society, actually. I think what should alarm us are, is slightly different things that are flowing from these situations of pressure, of uh, political pressure, of legal pressure, of funding pressure. 
And that is, if we look at the organizations and we look at the individual activists or uh, another term that we like to use is human rights defenders. So what we see, for example, is a very high turnover in the sector. So people not staying in the job very long. That could be for two reasons or three. <clears throat> the first is that funding for civil society is usually project-based. So you're, you're, you get the money for a certain project. That certain project lasts, if you're lucky, three years. If you're less lucky, one year. So as an organization, you cannot guarantee a salary longer. So of course, which good professional will eternally accept the situation where you never know if you will have the job for more than a year? Yes, often there is a follow-up funding, but often there is also no follow-up funding. So, so that is also a reason for the high turnover. And then also what we see and what, what, what is very difficult to grasp is actually the, let's call it psychosocial well-being of activists. And there is no awareness among activists and there is no awareness among organizations how to support their people in, this, in these situations. So what we did is in our annual consultation, we asked one question only about this, asking, so from all these pressures, did you see that there has been an impact on the psychosocial well-being of your staff or volunteers? And around 40% of respondents said yes. When people experience stress and trauma, there is a reaction in the body, which is called PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. So there was one study from the US that found that activists on the front line, so for example, supporting refugees at the border, their PTSD rates are as high as those of war veterans. But the sector is not talking about this. The funders are not talking about this. And there's a very interesting second point is that there is something that is called secondary PTSD. That is when you did not experience the trauma yourself, but if you're working a lot with people that have experienced trauma. And very interesting, it was now found that even if you only deal with data looking at suffering, you can experience secondary PTSD. Yeah, so all this area is not on the radar of organizations, of activists, of donors, of governments. And I think this is problematic. In March, the European Parliament further underlined the deterioration of civil society-related freedoms, also highlighting the obligation of the EU and its member states to ensure an enabling environment for civil society organizations. The Parliament report calls for a comprehensive strategy, which should include, among other points, a more flexible and accessible to more organization European Union funding, common minimum legal and administrative standards for civil society organizations across Europe, and a statute of European cross-border associations and non-profit organizations. Do you consider that these actions could set the EU on the right path to improve the current conditions in which civil society organizations operate? What are instead the areas that should receive more attention and why? We see that the enabling environment for civil society requires a lot of things. So it's a very complex picture. There are around 60 different topics that can be a problem. And there are some areas where the EU can become active and some areas where the EU cannot become active because of its legal competence. 
the EU can only become active in its legal competence at the EU level. In the area of civic space, what we see is that a lot of the issues are national competence. So freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of assembly. <clears throat> so the EU needs to find a way, a, a legal way in, basically. Therefore, I think it's important that to understand that the EU has to do certain things, can do certain things, but also member states have to do certain things and can do certain things. So regarding the parliament resolution, um, yes, the European Parliament for the first time ever published a report on civic space. Um, and I think that was an important milestone uh, because it's now finally also recognized by an EU institution that this is an issue inside the EU. Um, the European Commission will actually publish a report in December this year speaking about the implementation of the Charter of Fundamental Rights and, the, and civic space. So these are important steps. And, and so there are certain things that the EU can do, indeed. And I think they are absolutely on the right track. Um, so the call for funding, more flexible funding. The EU has just published in the last months a new funding call, which is called the Citizens' Equality Rights and Values Fund, which supports organizations working broadly on human rights issues and, and values, EU values. What's important in this fund is that the distribution does not go through member states, but directly with the EU. This was an important point because in some member states we have seen that money is not passed on to civil society or only to some organizations. So for this fund, organizations can apply directly. <clears throat> the funding has become more flexible. There are limits because if you distribute public funding, of course, you need to be accountable. It's taxpayers' money. And so there are certain rules in place that maybe could be a bit more flexible, but, but it has improved already. So to answer your question, yes, I think the EU is on the right path. The EU has a limited mandate to, to intervene. So also there needs to be calls to member states to understand and to improve the situation. Democracy's goal is to have plural and tolerant society. Citizens should be able to express themselves freely, especially on matters that directly affect them, especially how they would like to be governed. And on the one hand, a globalized, highly interconnected and digital present gives us the possibility to communicate, be informed and express our thoughts. But at the same time, misinformation, fake news and hate speech have sadly become a dangerous and widespread threat, further maximized by high-speed, far-reaching means of communication. In this context, how are civil societies influenced in their actions and essence? And how can the threatening action of misinformation be contained? Thank you for this important and interesting question. I think this is an area that needs far more attention, also within civil society, Uh, and of course, they are touched a lot by misin misinformation, miscommunication. It's only very recently that a few NGOs are, have been set up even or look more into, into this whole area. On communication, what we see is that 
some organizations are very professional, but for most of them, that's an, an afterthought, if you want. And so, of course, also they, and also because the funding is not there. And so um, there's definitely need for awareness raising, capacity building in these areas. Um, what the Fundamental Rights Agency has done for some years now, we have a project called uh, How to Better Communicate Human Rights. Uh, where we have worked uh, with professionals from the different areas, journalists, uh, neuroscientists, data journalists, um, philosophers, marketing experts, to understand from all these different angles on how to better communicate human rights. And if anyone is interested, there is a guide, which is called the 10 Keys to Effectively Communicate Human Rights. I think the principles actually go beyond human rights. And we also have set up a network of communicators, which has over 300 human rights communicators who exchange on these things, who also exchange on how to deal with misinformation. We, we have a project on misinformation as well and how to tackle it. Um, I think what we see is that there is still a long way to go. And what we know from the neuroscientists that we've worked with is that, and that's very dangerous, if you hear a thing often enough, your brain believes it. So what does this tell us about the misinformation that some states are producing about NGOs, for example? So we had very interesting conversations. For example, some states very often use the word criminals or smugglers in relation with civil society. So by coupling this in people's heads, this becomes connected, even, even for people who don't believe it. So when then you have a civil society answering, they even themselves associate the word criminal and smugglers with themselves. So this is really dangerous. So what we have tried to do is to educate organizations to react in a different way, to say all the good things that they are doing, but not to repeat the frame that governments are trying to impose on them. Why did you not act strongly before? There were many events that alerted you that there were governments that were trying to limit civil society's action. I'm thinking about, for example, the proposition of the European Commission about the breadth of the rule of law in Poland, in which they proposed some actions that the Polish government should follow in order to re-establish the order. Do you think that in cases like this, the EU should have done more? So from sitting within the EU system, I do think that the EU was always active, but in more silent ways than now. And I think it's important to understand three points. The first is the EU can only act when it has the legal competence to act. So when it's EU competence, not national competence. On civic space, very often it's national competence. And you need to find a, a way to enter. Secondly, um, the awareness of the challenges has grown in recent years, definitely. And there is more focus on that now. Thirdly, it is true that for a long time, for the EU, civic space issues were more an outside EU thing. And it was quite a wake-up call to see that things are actually happening also inside the EU. At the same time, we have to be realistic. It's not, I mean, human rights defenders are not 
regularly killed inside the EU. We had four journalists being killed in the last years, which is very alarming. For the EU, for a long time, the killings that happened outside the EU almost prevented it from seeing it, the problems inside its own house. Yeah. And the last point, which is also very important to understand, because you're speaking of the rule of law, most decisions in this area in the EU have to be taken unanimously among all member states. And so very often you have two member states supporting each other and not, not being able to reach the unanimity. So you need to find other ways of tackling it. And that, of course, can be complicated, takes time, etc. What we see is the EU increasingly using infringement procedures. Um, and what we also see is the EU having improved on the funding, trying to find other ways. You mentioned before, you mentioned um, the association statute for the EU. So all of this requires a long legal preparation. You need to find a legal basis, a legal basis that will hold, etc. What we also see is that more and more organizations actually bring human rights cases to the European Court of Justice. So we have these two different courts. The European Court of Justice responsible for EU law and the European Court on Human Rights in Strasbourg of the Council of Europe who focuses on human rights. But increasingly, organizations have understood that they can address both courts in parallel as well. Because if you go to the EU court and you win the case, that can actually create a change in EU law. Or uh, you can force a member state to implement EU law in a different way than what it has done so far. So there, there has been a lot of silent movement, I would say, over the last years. In your opinion, how is the situation going to develop? Do you think that there are actions that are mandatory to implement to change the situation? How it's going to develop, to develop will depend on a lot of different factors, including external to the EU. Um, what we see is that clearly there is more awareness about the need to create an enabling space for civil society. There is a better understanding already why civil society is important for a society and the work they do. Um, and there is also more awareness of the challenges that civil society is facing. Um, so I think there are five key things that civil society needs. The first is recognition. Each of us and policymakers need to understand that and why civil society is crucial for democracy and for the implementation of human rights. Yeah, it means standing behind them when they are attacked, etc. The second is resources. So funding is there, but not always for the things that civil society thinks they want to become active and, and they are closest to the ground. So we should also trust them to know what they need. Funding must become more easily accessible with even less bureaucracy. We need much longer funding cycles to, to ensure really a long lasting work. The third point is representation. So meaningful participation. We need minimum standards of how this should look like. Uh, we need uh, civil servants to know what that means. So we need public, we need training for public servants on how to do good participation. Because it's a skill, there are tools, there are technical methodologies on how to do that. 
And we often expect from public servants to just know how to do it with no time and no resources and no training. That's unfair, really, and not professional. What we also need is empowerment of vulnerable groups to be represented in all of this. The fourth is regulation. So this is about the laws. Some changes need to be made. I mean, overall, the laws are not so bad. They just need to be implemented now in, in, the, in the good way. And the fifth is resilience. So we need to strengthen the organizational resilience and the individual resilience. And, and so I will close with this, what is needed, the five R's. Recognition, resources, representation, regulation, and resilience. Baltraud, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. This is all for today's episode and for this season of our podcast. If you want to see more of our content, check out the EST website or find us on social media. To let us know about something you would like to hear on this podcast, drop us an email at podcast at See you soon!